0: Warning, this episode contains some strong language. Listener discretion is advised. stories that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Bisnyax. On today's episode, the first episode of season three of Tales from the Trunk, we have a very special guest. Kelly Robson is a Nebula and Hugo Award-winning author and author of the forthcoming collection, Alias Space. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thanks
1: so much. Thank you. I'm, I'm not a Hugo winner, though. I just have to correct you on that.
0: Oh, my apologies. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, that's okay. Aspiring Hugo winner, you know.
0: Aspiring Hugo winner. Uh, twice nominated
1: <laughs> in right.
0: the short story category. Yeah. I was doing my research last night, and then I just was like, yeah, Kelly's won Hugo Awards.
1: <laughs> no, no, that's not me. Someday, it's a big dream. You'll get there. Yeah, someday, maybe.
0: <laughs> um, Kelly, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for being the very first guest of season three. I, when I started this show in 2019, I didn't fully expect that season three would be a thing, but here we
1: are. <laughs> here we are. Thanks for inviting me. It's It's exciting Absolutely. to be talking with another human being that's not on a Zoom call at work.
0: I know. <laughs> I mean we're still on a zoom call, but
1: Yeah. That's okay. This is this is a, a friend Zoom call. Exactly.
0: <laughs> so Kelly, you're gonna be reading to us from Deadfall, is that correct?
1: That's right, yes, Deadfall.
0: And is there anything that we need to know about that before we get going on it?
1: Yeah, it's kind of cool. Um cool story. Last uh, let's see, I guess it was in twenty nineteen. You know the the years are just kind of all blending together. Trying time to is so the fake it's so fake so in 2019 um my wife alex am del monica and i uh, got invited to go do consulting for um uh for some international development types and basically, oh, very cool. yeah, it was very cool. So we were basically um, coming into the situation as science fiction writers and got to um, write off-the-cuff um, stories for them, um, drawing on information that they had come up with during their conferences. So oh, fabulous. Um, yeah, so this story is, is that, um, which I was hoping that I would be able to, uh, you know, that I would be able to get somebody to buy afterwards that that didn't happen, so... <laughs> here we are. Such
0: is life occasionally.
1: Yeah, yeah. And um, it's, I'm going to read you the whole thing. It's, uh, you know, probably the reason why it didn't sell is, Um, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here, <laughs> is that uh, you know, it's, it's I, I was trying my first short short.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah.
1: And so, yeah. So shall I? Let's do it. Into that? Okay, here we go. Deadfall. Belinda Moberly had spent nine years patrolling the Saskatchewan River crossing, carrying an old Canadian Forces surplus rifle, and riding a sure-footed trail horse. A low-tech approach to protecting Jasper's southern border, but she was fine with that. Better than fine, actually. She loved it. So when her supervisor announced she was being upgraded to hollow-sight semi-automatic and a hover-quad, she was not happy. You gotta be Mm. kidding. Belinda took a hard drag on her cigarette. She and Dan sat under the canvas tarp beside the fire pit, having a smoke and watching the rain stream off the warden station's cliffside howitzer emplacements. Below them, the bombed-out remains of the Icefield Parkway were disappearing under floodwater. Shaw thinks there's a tech solution to patrolling this? She waved at the steep mountain sides across the valley, thick with deadfall. What's the problem? You use tech all the time, Dan said. Do you know how much data you upload every day you're on patrol? Terabytes. This is just a way to do your job better. It's stupid. She was being too blunt. But she'd worked for Dan for a long time. He could take it. If I ride one of those bikes, I'll be a floating target for every pinpoint drone north of Banff. She used the glowing coal on the end of her cigarette to mime one of Stamtek's drones, aimed it right at her heart, and circled it with eight quick staccato blasts. Ping, 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 ping. Belinda's a dead warden. She stuck out her tongue and rolled her eyes back in her head. Then one more drag off the cigarette took the tobacco right down to the filter. She tossed the stub into the rain. All you'll get is some drone jockey down in Lake Louise carving another notch on their cubicle wall. She'd seen what those drones could do, and it was no joke. Detection has been a problem in the past, but Shaw's techies have a new shielding for the bikes. It works. Yeah, I'll believe that when they bring a vice president here to test it. (laughs) Downside. Listen, Belinda, maybe you don't follow the news, but the water wars are moving upstream. It's not Edmonton versus Calgary anymore, it's Jasper versus Banff, and Ground Zero is right here at the headwaters of the North Saskatchewan. We do what we're told, right? For Mother Shaw? He waited for her to repeat the slogan, his eyebrows raised. If she didn't, Dan would note it on her employment record, and some HR manager in Edmonton would flag her for hazardous duty. Huh. As if her job wasn't hazardous enough already. Hmm. For Mother Shaw, she repeated. Truth was, Belinda just really loved her horse. If she couldn't ride, she didn't want to be a park warden any more. Miss Dea was a little mare from Kip Kelly's outfit north of Hinton, pure, fine trail horse. Miss Dea never stumbled never slipped, and she could do 20 miles a day on vertical terrain through thick bush and heavy deadfall, picking her way up and down mountain slopes, felted with dead Douglas fir, while Belinda scanned the valley with her rifle's laser scope. But the horse didn't just know where to put her feet. Mistaya spotted half of Belinda's kills, a flick of the ears, a sudden halt, a turn of her long head on that short, thick neck, and Belinda knew something was out there. Most of the time it was a lone, barren ground caribou, wandering into the mountains looking for lichen. Sometimes it was an arctic wolf following those few hardy survivors, but sometimes it was a Stantec scout encroaching on Mother Shaw's territory. She let the caribou live always. The wolves too, of course. Belinda was more than happy to share Jasper with wildlife, but Stantec? Dead meat in her scope every time. Before tucking into her bunk, Belinda visited the stable carved into the side of Mount Wilson and checked on her horse. Mistea wickered and nudged the stall's latch with her nose. Got to stay in, old girl, Belinda said. It's dangerous weather out there. No place for you or me. Like any good trail horse, Mistaya hated being inside. No choice, though. For three days, the rains had been torrential, heavier than Belinda had ever seen. The weather monitors showed liquid precipitation even on the highest peaks. Mount Athabasca, Mount Columbia, Mount Alberta, all inundated by warm rain, their thick snowpack melting fast. Shaw's database designers had added new colors to the flood danger indication thermometer. It wasn't red at the top anymore, but purple, dark purple. Hmm. But that was good, right? All that water would flow into the Athabasca and the North Saskatchewan to be captured by Mother Shaw Reservoirs. That was money in the bank for the good mother, and water for all her people from Jasper to Saskatoon and all the way down to the demilitarized zone at Red Deer. Stantec might have Calgary and Banff, but their rivers were nothing compared to Jasper's. The bow, Clearwater, and South Saskatchewan just trickles, and Stantec's people only got droplets. Most of their water was contracted to the LDS Corporation in Utah.
2: Hmm.
1: My great-grandmother always said, if you have a problem, tell it to your horse. Mistaya flicked her ears. So I'll ask you, should I do this job from the back of a bike, can I? What choice do you have? Sure, Belinda knew it was her own interior voice asking the question, but she answered it aloud. You and I could ride back north, beg Kip to take us on as a guide, haul trophy hunters from Japan and China to the Wilmore, and try like hell to find game for them to shoot, pretend like everything isn't changing. Everything's always changing. Yeah, I know. Tears rose to Belinda's eyes, cold like the freshet coursing down the mountain slopes, lubricated by warm rain. Nothing stays the same. Well, I'm not young anymore, am I? "'Neither am I.' she said, "'you'll never die.' The horse looked at Belinda with her big, brown, liquid eye, nothing more sympathetic than a horse's gaze with that tenderly etched, worried expression that humans only showed in tragic circumstances. On a horse, it was always there. Sympathy, understanding, care. "'Mother Shaw takes care of her people,' Belinda said finally. "'So... I'll defend her water. If that means making myself a target on a damn hoverquad. quad, I'll do it. Belinda cupped her palm on the mare's whiskered chin, leaned in to press her lips on that warm and fragrant nose. But you're still my girl, Mistea. When the drones get me, you'll take me home.
0: Whew. <laughs> oh, that was gorgeous. Thank you. So the the thing that I was reflecting on the whole way through that was, uh, you know, from from the perspective of an American, all of the cities that I hear in fiction, even in short fiction, tend to be, you know, U.S. cities Mm -hmm. tend to be in some way related to, like, either here, the San Francisco area, or the New York City down to Washington, D.C., I guess Boston to D.C. corridor. Yeah, right. And just how very Canadian that was <laughs> in a way that was just really delightful to me because, you know, I've, I, as we were talking about before the show, I've only really spent time in Ontario and a little bit in Quebec, but I recognize all of these city names from, you know, Stan Rogers songs and <laughs> from having friends all over Canada.
1: Yeah, it's um it's really powerful to write about the area where you grew up when nobody else does.
2: Mhm. Um
1: it feels really really interesting. I um uh m- my first You know, I always try to. I tried to before, and I only just managed to start successfully setting stories in um, this area of Alberta, where I grew up, um, just uh, in the mountains, Um, Jasper Mm -hmm. Park and Banff. Only managed to just, in the last couple of years, do it. Um, Published a story uh, this past year in The Book of Dragons, which is a Jonathan Strong anthology that was set um, Set. Uh, yeah in 1983 when I was you know in high school in um Mm -hmm. in my hometown and uh and it's pretty personally powerful it feels good Mm -hmm. on the inside yeah
0: yeah I think one of the um one of the primary modes I was writing in when I started writing with my aim to get published was urban fantasy and I set everything, pretty much, in Philadelphia for that same sort of reason that, like, you know, New York City gets everything. Yeah, Boston gets things. DC gets things. And certainly in the science fiction space, I'd never really seen Philadelphia represented at all.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's so strange because there are so many writers who live in Philadelphia, right? And science fiction writers. Um, Yeah,
0: I mean... You know, growing up, I was uh, I was around the former editorial staff of Amazing Stories, and I mean, yeah. Fran Wilde lives in Philly. We've yeah. got all all these folks. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, it's it's weird. Uh, you know, I have had this theory for quite a long time that um, cities like Toronto, like Philly, they should be paying writers to write stories about it because stories Mm -hmm. bring people into the city. Like I don't go, I don't go, you know, dream about visiting London because I like the architecture. I I visit that because of the stories that I've read. that are set there. It's become this place in my imagination
2: Mm -hmm. because
1: of, of, of what I've read about, about the dramas, you know, makes a place attractive, makes a place real. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think it's really important to write about places that don't get written about.
0: Even if you immediately blow them up, I, I, <laughs> uh, I. Right after I moved to Oakland, where I live now, uh, I started reading uh, Mira Grant, Seanan McGuire's uh, Newsflash series, and in the beginning of the second book which is uh deadline like page 5 or something they blow up West Oakland <laughs> and oh, <no. laughs> I was just sitting there and and I had also just recently read uh Little Brother by Cory Doctorow mm-hmm. at the time and the You know, that book takes place in San Francisco, but one of the inciting events of the story is that the Bay Bridge gets blown up. And I was just like, you know, I get setting things in San Francisco, but it was like, I had lived in California for less than a year and had read more stories that were set in the area I was living mm-hmm. than I had ever read in the you know two and a half decades living in Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. Now it's it's important things for sure.
0: It's it's really a trip hearing this story that you just read uh because of the way that it takes on a lot of you know sort of science fiction and especially like near future dystopic science fiction conventions Mm -hmm. in a way that at once felt very familiar to me. And also uh, because it was, you know, focused in Canada, which I think about Canada abstractly a fair bit, but (laughs) concretely not very much.
1: (laughs) Well, that's, that's the thing, right? Um, uh, Setting really matters, Mm -hmm. Um, especially in science fiction. Um, you know, if you don't have a setting in your science fiction story, you don't have a story. So... It's um, so true. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's that's probably another reason why the story didn't sell is, is that, you know, the dystopic thing is a little generic. But, um, yeah. But, uh, you know, whatever. That's fine. <laughs>
0: yeah. It's, I mean, at the end of the day, like, we write these stories, you know, to... Sell them, but we write them for ourselves first. Because if if I can't get my heart into a story, I'm not going to finish
1: it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got to mean something to you. There's we don't just toss it off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, for sure, and it's um and it's a thrill when I read the story to uh, the people at the conference that uh, that Alex and I were working at. Um, y- you know, they all knew these place names, and and like mm-hmm. you. You—they'd know, never seen them, heard of them in a story before. And the um, the the Mother Shaw and the Stantec, these are these are big, you know, local corporations. The mm-hmm. Shaw Broadcasting and, and Stantec Engineering. So it was really, you know, it was definitely a way to get them on side in the story, is to <laughs> to put these big corporations as the big bads, the big corporate yeah. overlords. Um. Yeah. And and even even something as small as uh, the horse's name, Mistea. Is uh, you know I wanted I wanted a, a local Stoney Indian name, um, mm-hmm. and uh, for the the Stoney First Nation tribe and M- Mistaya is uh, the name of a creek that is in the area, and you know it's something that they recognize too. So yeah.
2: these these
1: yeah these vowels that that you know pop up in place names all over the area, and yeah,
2: it's kind of mm-hmm. cool.
1: So. thanks, I'm glad you liked yeah.
0: it. I think without having known that fact it sort of resonated to me because you know where I grew up in Philadelphia most of the place names they're like I just recently saw a map again of like Philadelphia place names and where they came from and a good third of all the names of places in Philadelphia are from the uh, Lenape tribe. Oh named- really? the delaware people by uh by european settlers mm-hmm. but you know all all of the names in philadelphia we have we have pennsylvania dutch names we have lenape names and then we have names from you know various european settlers from all around the uk uh but a lot of the names that we have are very much like you know, you're going up to Maniunk. We have, you know, all of all of these just, like, very specific names right, yeah. that put you immediately in that place that, like, yes, these are, you know, this is the greater Algonquin mm-hmm. area, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and these are the vowels they use, and these are... Uh, so So knowing that connection is really neat to have that sort of place and to acknowledge... The people who were there before yeah
1: and who are still there for sure yeah absolutely yeah
0: mm-hmm. yeah abs- I, yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's it, it is it is very i i know that we as two white people are not really equipped to speak to the issues of first nations peoples but it's very uh it's very easy to think of Native Americans in the abstract for me because you know we had a series of presidents who just moved them farther and farther west.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Um when I write about my home area um it's I I actively try not to ignore the fact that um that you know First Nations people are still there you know mm-hmm. that they they were um when i lived there my neighbors my friends um and their their lives and their traditions still very very alive so when i write something set in my hometown area the characters almost always first nations as a white person you know that's questionable but honestly to ignore the fact that those people exist in that landscape and belong to that landscape in a way that I never did, um, mm-hmm. would be worse, so yeah, so yeah, for better or worse that's that's the situation um, it is yeah
0: there're always i mean there are always thorny things to deal with um, in. Art and to pretend that art is non-political, I think, is the the worst way to go about it. Oh
1: yeah, no, it can never be non-political. No, not a chance. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you you talked a little bit about writing this story from uh, coming out of being, I guess, sort of artists in residence at this conference. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that experience, because I think that's one that not a lot of people ever even think about.
1: Oh, yeah, it's a very cool. Um, if you do get the chance to do any futurist consulting, um, like jump on it. So yeah, this is something that a lot of um, science fiction writers do. Um, you know, either, um, uh, you know, occasionally or sometimes um you know, a lot as a, as an actual profession. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Carl, uh, Carl Schrader is a futurist. Do you know Carl Schrader? Science fiction novelist. Mm -hmm. He's from Toronto. He works as a futurist uh, for IBM and um, Madeline Ashby uh, has a futurist consulting company. Um, And that's, you know, one of her major, one of her major, you know, day-to-day pursuits. So it's a very cool thing. Um, Alex and I have done it a couple of times for uh, through a consulting company, kind of like a um, kind of a cool, uh, you know, tech consulting company in Waterloo, Ontario. Um, we just got the gig because of friend of a friend, um, <laughs> which is a pretty awesome way to get a gig, I must say. And yep. yeah, so they shipped us off to, they flew us to Banff. Uh, we got to stay at the Banff Center for the Arts, which is a, you know, the the Canadian mecca for um, for artistic, you know, uh, retreats, that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. it was a, the first time Alex and I have ever been there. And and so it pre- felt pretty cool being there and, and being paid to be there. It was pretty neat. For sure. So uh, what they did was they had, uh, what they were trying to do is they were trying, the, the group group. Um, was trying to do long term visioning mm. note all of these ngos um, in the last couple of years have realized that twenty thirty is coming really close is coming really it's soon so soon so soon twenty thirty my god right so and so what they were doing was they were looking at um the next 15 years of change while looking back and seeing how much change has happened in the past 15 years. Mm. So they were trying to see, trying to vision where things are going. And what ended up uh, happening was the people who are facilitating the uh, group um, split everyone up into four different groups um, and then assigned a science fiction writer to each group and they were all basically um, had gone through this huge process to start thinking about the future and thinking about you know extrapolating what sort of um what, what sort of things they might see in the future. And I ended up being um, assigned to the group that basically had the the dystopia scenario, the worst <laughs> <laughs> the worst case scenario. So uh, so that's always fun. You you really want to get that one because that's the fun.
0: Yeah, that fun that one to seems like in a lot of ways the. Not only the most fun, but also the easiest. It is. um, That, you know, you you really get to think like, okay, well, I know something terrible is going to happen, and now I just get to come up with creative ways to make it as terrible as possible. (laughs) Yes.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. It was awesome.
0: Yeah. Um, Thinking about that reminds me of the... Uh, Futurescapes workshop and the the first Futurescapes anthology which came out mm, uh, three four years ago I don't remember when exactly now but it was uh very much focused on sort of future visioning specifically of urban landscapes and figuring out um what like The governments of the future could look like and things Mm, like that interesting um and i did some work slushing for that and so i i got to read a, a lot of the entries and some of the winning entries were just like amazing ideas in terms of like what's coming out of it um and so i i don't tend for myself to do a lot of that sort of future thinking because I'm I'm uh I work in technology and so I do a fair bit of just like you know what's in the next year sort of thinking in terms right. of what terrible things technology is going to do <laughs> <laughs> Oh no Um but I think that that uh, role of being a futurist is really neat It yeah. is
1: it's a lot of fun and when you can um when you can toss off a 1,500-word story in an afternoon and then read it to these people you've been talking to all day, they look at you like you're a freaking mu- magician.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's so cool. It's like they have it's no so idea cool. how you just did what you did. I love
0: that. Yeah. That is, you know, that's one of the things that I've always sort of taken for granted even before I... uh I won't say before I became a writer, but before I decided to pursue writing is, and, you know, obviously it's not the same for everybody, but I think the facility that we can have with words is something that we might take for granted a lot of the time.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and even, um, even not just the facility with creating words, but also with reading,
2: Mm -hmm. Like how
1: many people are (laughs) really not all that great at reading comprehension kind of stuns me. Um, yeah. Yeah. Being, being an expert reader is a really good skill. It is.
0: It's something, you know, it's another thing that takes practice, but it's one of those things that, you know, unlike so many things you can practice it anywhere. You can, you know, work on it and, uh, it's it's something that's very interesting for me because I used to really balk at, like, I would practice reading things um, when I was in my creative writing program in college. And, you know, our our teachers would always say, like, you've got to read things out loud so that you know how they sound so that you can catch things. Okay. And I would always really balk at it because I just, like was resistant to the sound like hearing the sound of my own voice.
2: Oh,
1: really?
0: And just sort of got over that at some point.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, at some point you get you get used to hearing your And when I first started um recording podcasts with people, I, uh, you know, my voice sounded so strange in my ears when mm-hmm. when I would listen to it again and it doesn't anymore. Like you get used to it, right? So yeah. That's kind of cool.
0: Yeah, in it's certainly by I think the first half of season 1 of this show I had like become completely inured to the sound of my own voice and I was just like yep, yep. that's what I sound like
1: <laughs> there we go it's not weird anymore like, right? it's that not something inside
0: <laughs> yeah I have my inside me voice and I have my outside me voice and I know what both of those sound like yeah,
1: and I don't fine. have a
0: problem with either of them now
1: <laughs> there we go excellent personal growth yeah.
0: personal growth <gasps> um it's Nice to hear you bring up podcasting because it is, I feel like it's a a related skill to writing in some ways, Um, but I'd love for you to uh, talk a little bit about your experiences with podcasting because you came at it from a a different angle than I did.
1: Oh yeah, well, um, yeah, no, just as a podcast guest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, getting in, invited to to record podcasts with people, you know, um, quite a few over the last six years. So, yeah. which is is pretty fun and pretty cool. You no, know, it's always great. It's always super great to chat with people who are passionate about the same things that you are.
2: Mm-hmm. Talk,
1: you know, when people give you the opportunity to talk about yourself and your own work, that's a real gift, right? Mm-hmm. Like. Uh, i'm not the kind of i don't have the kind of ego where i think everybody is super interested in everything i have to say but if you mm-hmm. invite me on your podcast I, obviously you are interested and i can just kind of lean back and la 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 tell you everything mm-hmm. ooh, 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 ooh. yeah
0: yeah it wasn't until this past year i've been you know now making podcasts for two years and uh It was only in the last like six months that I started getting invited on other people's podcasts and like sitting on the other side of it. Um, So it's really interesting to me getting that experience now.
1: Um, uh, Super fun. And podcasts really are the medium of the right now. They are. Alex and I have been, uh, podcasts have been saving us. We have survived the pandemic through three things. Podcasts. Uh, virtual reality. We've both got Oculus goggles. They are amazing for, uh, you know, we live in a small apartment, but really the whole world is our oyster. When we've got those goggles on, it's
2: fantastic. Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, and um, uh, Korean TV shows.
2: Yep,
1: <laughs> those. That's our trifecta of surviving the pandemic.
0: Yeah, yeah. For me, it's been podcasting. Uh, Animal Crossing, and we have, we live in a a fairly quiet neighborhood that we have a perfect one-mile loop. Oh, nice. That we can just, like, go around our our set of blocks in half an hour, just take half an hour from our workday to go on a walk, and we have our dog friends who we see along the way.
1: Nice. Oh, that's lovely.
0: Um...
1: That's Uh, a really good ritual.
0: It's it's really you know, I think especially now one of the one of the like I don't want to call it blessings in disguise, but one of the things that I've tried to take that is positive out of the pandemic situation is like learning these new coping strategies. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important as an artist because it's such a solitary thing to be doing.
1: Yeah, you're alone a lot and alone in your own head a lot, and it can be mm-hmm. uh, it can be a bit much sometimes. You get a little weird after a while. Being <laughs> you in your do head you really much. do i um <laughs> I uh, had to write a story in a month, had to write a 15,000 word story in a month. And this was to fulfill a... Like, I don't write that fast, usually. Usually stories take me a good, you know, three months. Um, mm-hmm. This The story that I just read, having written that in a day, completely not usual for me. Yeah. Um, I... Uh, so I had to fulfill a contract um, because something came up really quickly. Had to write this story in a month. And um, I found that towards the end of the month, I had gotten really strange. And like all of my like personal inhibitions had gone away. I found, mm-hmm. I realized this when I was sitting in the office, having a meeting with my boss at the conference table and realized that I was leaning back in my chair and I had my feet up on the table. And I, hadn't, <laughs> I was just that relaxed and that in my own head that I did not realize that I was completely inappropriate. Luckily, my boss is a really tolerant guy. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, oh, well
0: yeah it is like you do get into a a weird state sometimes though when you uh when you spend so much time with words that are inside your head Mm -hmm. and worlds that are inside your head
1: yeah yeah a weird state and a necessary state i think it's necessary for creating which is why Mm -hmm. a lot of us had had or continue to have but especially at the beginning of the pandemic had uh, a lot of creative um, you know struggles is because mm-hmm. something else was in our head, this panic, this unfamiliar sensation of what the hell is going on we don't know
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, so you know our her normal her normal storytelling brain was not online because yeah. of this weird external situation
0: yeah, it took me uh i i did uh a weekend warriors style flash thing for uh i think in conjunction with the codex flat, uh flash right. weekend warriors but not with codex yeah. um which i'm not a member of but uh i i did that last year right before the pandemic and and wrote Two or three flash stories that everybody else told me. Oh yeah, this is a a great like outline of a novel, like, <laughs> you know. And and I felt really great about that. I was like, you know, I've I've done some creating. I hadn't really, for a variety of reasons in 2019, with uh, changing jobs and living situations and just like and starting this podcast i hadn't done really any fiction writing in 2019 and and i came into 2020 and i banged out these stories and i was like this is going to be great and then the pandemic hit yeah yeah and i didn't write any more fiction until that's not true i wrote fiction i i wrote fanfic right after the end of shira <laughs> but great. i i didn't write any Other fiction, like, I wrote, you know, these three Flash stories in January, February, and then I didn't write anything until May, and then I didn't write anything until November when I did NaNoWriMo, and it was like, it took that much time to find how to do writing in this new space.
1: Yeah, and I think that's typical for a lot of writers, and it's also okay it's fine. It's okay. We're not, mm-hmm. you know, our worth doesn't hinge on how many words we put out per year. It really doesn't. Yep. So, uh, you know, if people are having a tough time, well, it, it is a tough time right now. And I think yeah. I think the main thing is just try and survive and, and not, not, you know, make yourself as happy as you possibly can be. And for a lot of people, that is going to include writing. And for some people, you know, that's it's not. And that's that's fine. Yeah. You're still a writer that's, if you don't write in a year.
0: That's really hitting on the whole thesis of this show, uh, which I I appreciate you being the one to say it, because I feel like so often I'm just like, you know, cranking the same old handle, but <laughs> uh that you know, it it really is like it's okay to trunk things. It's yep. okay to not write things for a year or two years mm-hmm. or a month or a week or however long to have dry spells
1: yeah or, or to even to um to spend decades of your life trying trying to write or trying to figure out how to write or trying to get your brain or trying to get the 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 voices in the back of your head to shut up enough so that you can write I spent decades mm-hmm. doing that I didn't publish my first story I didn't learn how to write a decent story until 2013 but I had been trying to be a writer for years
2: mm-hmm. and it
1: sometimes it just freaking takes a long time yeah so that's yeah. that's okay because you know we're we're in it too we're in it to write good stories
2: Mm-hmm. Like, for me,
1: that's that's the thing. I want to write a good story. I don't want to write just yeah. any old story. I want to write a good story. And figuring out a way that I can write a good story took a long time. And it was worth it. Because I'm the happiest person in the world right now. Because mm-hmm. I figured out how to do the thing that I was hoping I'd be able to do, you know, when I was a teenager.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah. That's yeah. really great. And it is, I mean... I think one of the other hard things is that it's so easy to get focused on other people's rate of success. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, and my wife is a writer. And Mm -hmm. Alex has been a professionally published science fiction writer since 1995. And Alex... Focuses on writing like with a laser sight. Mm -hmm. And I always found that super intimidating because I couldn't be that way. I didn't have that kind of self confidence that Alex Mm -hmm. has always had. So when I saw Alex's um, way of working and looked at myself and went, you know, why aren't you doing that? It's like, because that's not me, right?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And it wasn't like, it wasn't a jealousy thing or anything like that. It was just a, Wow, if that's what it takes, then I'm never going to do it. Right? Mm-hmm. But then, you know, I realized that, you know, there isn't ever just one way of doing things. Right. You have to find your own way. And, and that way is not going to look like anyone else's. No two sculptors work the same. No two painters work the same poets, Mm -hmm. playwrights, we all do it completely differently. It's because we're individual people. We have to figure out what goes on up here in the skull. We have to figure out our own way of working, our own practice, artistic practice.
0: And I think that that applies even outside of the, you know, the traditional arts that everybody has. And that, you know, that's something that I struggled with in school. Is like, I didn't, like, respond to the traditional school stimuli.
1: Ah, uh, yeah, of course. Or, yeah, that makes you know, sense, too.
0: Like, all of, all of these things, there is so much individualism, mm-hmm. and it's very easy to for us to be down on ourselves when we don't conform to what is being held as the right way to do the thing. Right,
1: right. Yes, absolutely. But, in fact, there is no one right way. Mm-hmm. Yeah yeah and it's important the thing that we do is important storytelling is i it's just absolutely the most important thing in the world mm-hmm. so you know if it if it if it takes a if it takes a, person a long time to figure out how to do it that is what it should be because it's a really super important thing if it were easy everybody would be doing it yep so there we go yeah for sure that's my pep talk. Yeah. <laughs> Kelly's pep talk. Do the thing. <laughs>
0: Do the thing. Do it. Um You know, I I think sort of in conjunction with this that this blue police box just showed up in the room behind me and and maybe we can take a step into this time machine and uh if there are any specific words of wisdom that you would like to offer to past Kelly. <laughs>
1: So my word of wisdom is write it. If you don't write it, it will never exist. Hmm. So, yeah, it's important to make things exist. You've got to manifest it, is.
0: it. And that's, you know, I think that that's a lesson that takes a, a long time to learn in some cases. Yeah. You know, going on that model, this podcast happened because... I realized that nobody else was going to make the podcast I wanted to be listening to. Right.
1: This is the content. you. These are the questions that you wanted to be asking.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and for me, like, you know, these are the, this is the writing content. This is the writing podcast I wish had been around when I was, you know, a young writer just getting started.
1: Yeah. But the internet didn't exist then.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, I, The internet as it is now certainly did not exist exist. then. I started writing in 2005 when, you know, social media was MySpace and Facebook was, like, this weird new thing that was just on the horizon (laughs) just for college students.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and yet that was only 15 years ago, right?
0: And that is... Just banana pants. Isn't
1: that crazy? What are we going to be doing in 2035? Yeah. Don't know. Nobody knows. But it's going to be really different because the pace of change just keeps speeding up.
0: It is. It's, it's so, I think, important to think about that, though. And I think a lot of people are held back by just thinking about what is here and now and... <laughs> And what is possible within existing frameworks rather than imagining new frameworks.
1: Well, and that was one of the things that was really interesting about the consulting, the futurist consulting things we did, is I think that though everyone is focused on thinking about the future, what it really helped them do was think about now, like to conceptualize Mm. now, to accept that changes are happening now, Um, which you know that's it, humans resist thinking mm-hmm. about what is happening now right um yeah because it can seem so complex but uh but you the 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 world that we're living in right now that is manifesting under us as we speak is the future we're already living in the future mhm so you know, businesses, especially, you know, a lot of them are are living in the world of quite a, quite a wise, ways ago, actually. Yeah. Because they can't handle the now. They can't conceptualize it. So if we think yeah, about but... the future, we're really thinking about the now.
0: It's, you know, it's, it's really great to hear you say that. Um, one of the things that always bothered me in... Uh, when I was getting a writing education was, there was always this focus on like, you know, you have to write literary fiction. Uh We, uh, we don't dabble in the genres (laughs) unless we are (laughs) going to transcend the genre, which is, you know, some silly bullshit that they say about people who in a lot of cases are dead and can't, you know, tell those people to just go stuff it anymore. (laughs) That's right. Uh, but I always, I always had this conception that like, no, the the science fiction, the fantasy is absolutely vital because it lets us talk about the now with sort of an abstraction layer.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, and use use uh, concrete metaphors to get at some really scary stuff. Mm-hmm and um yeah no i I kind of feel like science fiction fantasy are the genres that have um the widest spectrum of colors available to us
2: mm-hmm. um, and
1: honestly when we talk we talk about we talk about the literature canon you know most of those books are genre in some way i'm sorry mm-hmm. but moby dick is an adventure book right like yeah, <laughs>
0: Frankenstein is the first science is fiction novel. It's the first novel. science fiction
1: novel. I mean, these books are all, all of them, if you look at any of those lists, they're all genre. Uh, it's it's artificial, and it's snobbery, and it's part of it is universities have to feel as though they're up in, you know, they're up in some, you know, uh, their nose is higher in the air than somebody else's. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. We'll We'll get over it someday.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you know, I think... Probably less than five years from now, we'll be seeing things that were published five, ten years ago in genre being taught widely. At so. least I hope so.
1: I hope so too, because there's so much great stuff.
0: I I just finished reading uh, *An Unkindness of Ghosts* by Rivers Solomon, and uh, it is they're... such an incredibly present book. They for being a far future,
1: so good, so good, yeah, Absolutely.
0: it's uh listeners, if you are thinking about checking out an unkindness of ghosts, please know content warning for a lot of things, <laughs> but it is just an incredible, incredible book, and uh you know i'm I'm looking forward to seeing what Rivers has to. Uh, tell us in the future because i know that it's going to be incredible
1: yeah yeah i yeah give me give me give me give me can we jump Uh in that jump in that uh that time travel thing that you've got there behind you and uh
0: yeah yeah i think it only goes backwards unfortunately
1: damn it it. (laughs) Ah, that's too bad i should have given myself Uh, lottery numbers
0: yeah (laughs) <laughs> so we can do a little bit of future thinking because uh, Alias Space is coming out from Subterranean Press on April 30th.
1: That's right. Yes, this is my first collection, short stories. Um, it's really exciting. Um, Subterranean is a really fantastic publisher. They've been so lovely to me, so great to work with. Um, and the cover is beautiful. I got to like work with the the artist Lauren St. Ong, you know, it, pretty That's like fantastic. directly. Uh, it's just, it's the book of my dreams. So, one of the things about going with, or if one should be so lucky and fortunate to get an offer from Subterranean for your book, is they, they really want to put out the book that you want to put out. Mm-hmm. Like, you can basically tell them, this is my vision, this is exactly what I want. And they'll be like, no problem, we'll make that happen. Really good people. Um super excited. Uh it's a really huge book. Um it's like four hundred and fifty pages. Hardcover yeah. Hardcover um it's a hardcover limited signed edition. So I had to I had to sign like twelve hundred pages. Oh fantastic. <laughs> it was really and tiresome. Fun. It was it was really neat. I was surprised at how fun it was. Mm -hmm. Um, I really enjoyed it. It was a good time. Uh, But yeah, it took a week. And uh, it has all of this, it has stories, the stories that are in it were all, um, you know, it has my first published story from 2015. Uh, So, and it has a um, all of my best stories in the past six Mm -hmm. years. And it has an original story called Alias Space. Which,
0: oh, awesome! Yeah,
1: which um, uh, is is kind of a play on um, the title of a uh, Margaret Atwood um, mm. a book called Alias Grace. Um,
0: oh, and neat!
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and coming up with that title was when I I got my groove back during the pandemic. I was working. I had to. I had a deadline. I was working on the story. And I really was really feeling like there's just no juice going in my, my writer brain right now. But I got out my trusty um, huge sketch pad. This is one of my best writing tools. It's a huge sketch pad with which I make a lot of mess.
0: Oh, fabulous. I
1: think best when my hands are moving and when I'm doodling. Mm-hmm. So I doodle and doodle and doodle and I write down my thoughts and I make a big mess. And when I came up with the title alias space, that's why I knew things were starting to move again
0: that's awesome
1: yeah it's setting the story is set in toronto and it's basically about how toronto became the uh street burlesque uh capital of the world street burlesque performance capital of the world (laughs) it's a lot of fun well
0: listeners be sure to pre-order alias space from your local independent bookseller wherever possible uh Links, as always, will be in the show notes. Uh, Kelly, before we go, where can listeners find you elsewhere?
1: I'm constantly on Twitter at Kelly Kelly, Yoyo, K-E-L-L-Y-O-Y-O is my handle, and also at Instagram with the same handle.
0: Fantastic. And I would highly recommend following in both locations. Kelly, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. It's been an abu- absolute blast.
1: Aw, oh, thanks so much, Hillary. It's been a really good time. It's been nice to visit with you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, looking forward to the far-flung future of hopefully just six months from now when we'll be able to travel and, and- meet in person and... <laughs> have the big science fiction meetups that we dream of
1: oh that would be so great i would love that so much let it happen let it happen
0: it'll be here (laughs) i i trust all shall be well again
1: yes yes let's let's trust it
0: yeah listeners join us again next month when our guest will be nino Cipri. tales from the trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful oakland california our theme music is Paper Wings by Ryan Boyd. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a sticker and logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at trunkcast, and I tweet at hbbisnyx. If you like the show, Consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self reject.